Welcome to episode 9 of the Going For Broke Outdoors podcast. A podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we welcome one of the most recognizable and accomplished names in bow hunting, John Eberhardt. John is a lifelong bow hunter who has bagged 50 record book caliber whitetails from 32 different properties. In this episode, we focus on the importance of getting organized, and then we move on to early season setups, John's favorite early season calling technique, using preseason scouting to identify high odds early season locations, and how John killed his biggest buck ever by making a well-timed move. This is part one in what will be a two-part podcast series. Friendly reminder, if you're listening to this podcast and you'd like to see it hosted on other platforms, you can help me by subscribing to this YouTube channel, sharing the podcast with a friend, or making a donation towards hosting fees using the link in the video description below. In the meantime, the podcast will continue to be hosted here on YouTube. Guys, if you haven't already stopped by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear, you're missing out. The off-season is the perfect time to upgrade your mobile hunting setup. There's not a better product on the market for eliminating unwanted noise. Stealth Outdoors manufactures an incredibly durable product for a great value. Designed from the ground up with a mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Speaking of mobile hunting setups, consider upgrading your mobile setup with a set of stick talons from mobilehuntinggear.com. Stick talons offer a way to securely fasten most popular climbing sticks to a variety of mobile tree stands and now saddle platforms as well. Not only do the stick talons provide secure climbing stick transport to and from your hunting location, they also aid at the tree setups by keeping your climbing sticks organized and quiet on your stand while you ascend the tree. Stick talons are the solution to a one trip up the tree setup. Mobile hunting gear also offers customized solutions for just about any mobile hunting setup. Reach out to mobilehuntinggear.com for a customized quote. Now, on to the podcast. Well, on today's show, we have John Eberhardt. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeremy. So, before we get into the interview, first of all, I just want to say thanks. I was a very casual deer hunter from probably age 14 to 25. I gun hunted a few times, bow hunted a few times, but I never really had a ton of interest. And honestly, I didn't have a whole lot of patience. Call it exuberance of youth or or whatever. But around 2008, I was 25. I really got the itch to start taking bow hunting more seriously. I think I'd killed like one or two does with a bow to that point. So wasn't having a whole lot of success. And around that time, I ended up picking up a copy of Bow Hunting Pressured Whitetails at my local archery shop, which for people that aren't familiar, that's a book that John wrote. And it was really eye-opening. Uh, wow, was I doing about everything wrong. So not long after that, I read Precision Bow Hunting, and those two books really set me on the path to success. I've had a lot of up and downs since 2008, but I can guarantee you that I wouldn't have had anywhere near the success that I've had now if it wasn't for your book. So I want to thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge um, in those books and also today in the podcast. And I also want to recommend to anyone listening who hasn't read John's books to go ahead and check them out. So John, uh, where can people find your books and your DVDs? And you also have a pretty popular YouTube channel. So where, where can people find you these days? I think the books you can probably still find on Amazon.com. Um, used to be in Borders and Barnes. I think Borders is closed. Barnes should have, still have them. Or on my website. My website would be the best, and that would be at uh, D-E-E-R-John.net. 
dear-john.net. There's a lot of information on there, testimonials from the books, uh, pod, podcasts. I've probably done over 60 podcasts. A lot of them are on there, just you know, links to podcasts. and uh, The DVDs and all the books are on there as well. And then what's your YouTube channel, John? Uh, YouTube channel is Eberhart Outdoors. I've watched a ton of your videos. I know you got quite a few out. So how long have you been doing that now? Uh, well, the YouTube channel I've only been doing for less than a year, but I've, I've done, uh, I did a whole series of uh, YouTube uh, shows, instructional shows for deer and deer hunting, the magazine. Uh, they're still out there roaming around someplace. And uh, I've got other videos out there. I, I, I honestly haven't even kept track of where they're at. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot of videos out there. It's typically, if you just Google my name, they pop up someplace. Okay, great. Appreciate that. Like I said, uh, I know you're a really popular figure in the, the DIY community, and I know some of that content is newer, the YouTube channel specifically, so I want to give a chance to people that aren't aware of you to, to get out there and check that stuff out. And Jeremy, it's, uh, I just want to say this. It's, it's all instructional stuff. It's all designed, whether it be gear. I've been a sales rep in the hunting industry for 30 years. I've been on it for 53 years. I've used about every damn tool there is for location preparation, scouting, uh, steps. Uh, I've used about everything there is. You know, I'm a big saddle guy since 1981, and um, a lot of my YouTube videos are just uh, on gear. You know, weed out all the crappy gear that's out there, and, you know, they, they tell people what's the best saws, what's the best backpacks, uh, bow hangers, you know, just a lot of boots, uh, waterproof gear. You know, scent control. It, it's all instructional stuff. None of my YouTube videos are about kills, because there's, you know, you can watch kills on anything. anybody can anybody can video a hunt and then put it on a YouTube show. Uh, that's relatively simple. My my stuff's all instructional, and I cut out the bull. So I'm not in. I don't get paid to endorse anything. Everything that I endorse, it's the best of that category. I don't make a dime off endorsing it. I, I will not because I, if I feel like if I'm getting paid to endorse something, I'm kind of going to push people that direction, and that's not something that I do. I, I endorse something because it's the best in its category. That's good information to know, too, that it's, uh, you know, like you said, no bull straight from the source. And one of my favorite sayings is there's no replacement for experience. And like you said, bow hunting for 53 years, you've got a lot of it, and obviously you're results speak for themselves which is uh one of the reasons i'm so excited to talk to you today so we'll go ahead and roll into the the first question here and one of the things that i noticed reading your books and ties directly into what we we're just talking about your youtube channel and your instructional is that you appear to me to be highly organized and especially as a hunter so i'd like to discuss how being organized and systematic in your approach to deer hunting has contributed to your success and if you have any ways to specifically that come to mind kind of how you started getting organized and how that system evolved over time i've always been a very organized person i grew up in uh, my mother was a very organized person and uh nobody in my family hunted which i think was a very good thing for me i think being self-taught and not not learning your dad and your grandpa's uh you know old school methods of hunting you know, go to point A and then you come back, you know, go to point A and you hunt and you go there every day or you only hunt two or three stands a, a season and you beat them to death. 
you know, I, I wasn't mentored by anybody, so to speak. I, I just was self-taught, and because I'm a very organized and a very disciplined person, I'm 70 years old. I've worked out all my life. I still work out every day that I'm home. I'm in very good physical condition. I can climb trees with anybody. And, and all of that makes a difference. How, how well organized you are has a lot to do with how well you can do scent control, how well you can prepare a tree, how well you have your entry and exit routes laid out for each specific location. You know, you're able to identify and organize, okay, this is a morning location, this is an evening location, this is an early season location, it's a rut phase location, uh, maybe it's a midday location, a great midday location during the rut phases. Being organized is is really helpful in all of that because I know a lot of guys that are just they're just not detail oriented people and there is absolutely no way that they could be extremely successful with a scent control regimen, let's say. As you well know, I pay zero attention to wind direction. It's irrelevant to me because I've got a very good scent control regimen. But I know hunters that have tried to do scent control and they're just not detail oriented enough to take the steps required and follow through with doing it. So uh, being detail oriented def definitely makes a big difference in success. I don't care what you do in life, whether you're hunting, whether it's a work, whether you're playing sports, uh, the more detail oriented you are and determined and disciplined, the more successful you're going to be at it. I don't care what, what it is in life. So follow-up question would be, what did that look like early on? Were you doing journaling or notes? Like let's say back in the 70s when you were starting to kill some of your first big bucks and into the 80s before the age of the internet and computers. And are you doing anything different now, let's say since 2005 on when you know the internet became more prevalent and Google Maps and all that stuff? Did, did you have any evolution or are you still doing the same types of things that you were doing uh, 70s and 80s? Yeah, well, of course you you evolve. Hunting, I've evolved a lot as a hunter, and you know, back back in I don't know, probably I guess in the mid '70s, after I'd been hunting about ten years, you know, I started keeping notes on everything. Um, anytime I'd get a new piece of property, and keep in mind, I, I didn't really mention this early on, but uh, I, I've got. 31 bucks in the Michigan record book with a bow, and I've gotten killed 19 Pope Young bucks out of state with a bow. And so I've got 50 bucks that are in the record record book or our record book class. And all I've ever hunted in my life is public land and knock on doors for free permission properties. I've never owned anything. I've never leased anything. I haven't hunted any relatives' property. I've never paid a dime to hunt any place. And I Unless somebody can tell me otherwise, I can't think of anybody else that has got 50 book bucks, 100% of them coming off public land and knock on doors for free permission properties. So those of those 50 book bucks, they came off 32 different properties, and the ones from Michigan was off 19 different properties in 10 different counties. So, you know, a lot of guys kill bucks on their own private property, and they might kill a book buck every other year or something, but... I've done it kind of differently, and I've stuck to that. I've had a lot of people want me to do TV shows and, um, you know, want me to go hunt some paid hunt ranches in lieu of me saying nice things about the ranch, and I refuse to do that. Even if it's free, I will, I will not do that because I feel I'd be a hypocrite to what I've been 
teaching. So everything I've, I'm teaching and write about in any instruction I give on YouTube channel. It's all about hunting public land and free stuff because people hunt micromanaged properties and big leases like TV guys. You don't have to be very skillful to kill kill bucks in the, those types of areas. Um, oftentimes, you know, your resume as far as your kill resume doesn't have any reflection on your skill set because you have no competition. You know, it'd be like. Uh, you know, you look at your sports heroes, like your icons, Tom Brady's and Phil Mickelson's and Michael Jordan's, you know, they competed against people in high school, middle school, in college, if they got, you know, scholarships to college and drafted into the pros. And they outperformed everybody through school, college, and they've all competed all the other professionals. And the thing that they have done is they did it on the same football fields, the same swimming pools like Michael Phelps or same golf courses. They competed against hundreds of thousands of people to be an icon in what activity they're doing, sport activity. In hunting, there really can't be any icon because there's no level playing field. You know, the TV guys are hunting in zoo-like settings, a lot of micromanaged stuff, no competition whatsoever. So their their kills don't have any reflection really on their skill set. You take some guy from PA or West Virginia that's hunting public land all the time, and he's killing a two-and-a-half-year-old buck every year, even though it may be 90 inches, he's probably a better hunter than they are. He could probably go to any of their properties and do every bit as good, if not better than them, whereas they couldn't go to public land where he's at and do what he's doing because the way they hunt, you can't kill deer that way on public land in a pressured area. So I had to lay that out there first. But then can I reflect back at your question? Can you mention the question again? Yeah, so the, the question was, uh, so back in the 70s and 80s, pre-internet, what were you doing to get organized and to stay organized? And then post-internet, uh, how did your like journaling, scouting, mapping system evolve? Uh, mapping has changed because I used to, back in the 70s, I started buying notebooks. And it's, it's kind of interesting because I just finished one of my whitetail workshops yesterday. I, I do weekend whitetail workshops. And that question actually came up. Well, how did you map your locations back years ago? And I, I pulled out four notebooks, and there were probably, and I started doing that in the mid-'70s through until the Internet came out where I was printing aerials of properties. I, I probably have 250 maps in these notebooks, and each map is of a different property. And basically what I would do is I would draw the layout of the land. Um, I would mark the trees. I'd dot, make dots on my entry routes and my exit routes, what kind of tree it was. Was it a morning spot? Um, you know, was it in a swamp or whatever? Because I had to do draw everything out by hand. So I've always mapped everything out. I've kept all of those notebooks, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did not throw them away. And now I do it differently. Now I print aerial maps out. I zoom them out, zoom them out, and then I print them out. And then I mark. Now I mark all my stuff on on aerials, and then I keep them in my uh, state Delorme maps. So when I'm traveling around, and and because I only hunt public land and knock on doors for free permission properties, I probably hunted on. 300 different parcels of property in my life, and I've probably prepped over a thousand trees, would be my guess. Um, it's not uncommon for me to do 20 to 30 trees in a year, at least it used to be. Now I'm doing five to 10 a year. But I've got records of all that stuff since, since basically the mid 70s. And, uh, you know, I always referred back to that because 
you know, there were times when I'd hunt four or five different pieces of public land and, you know, maybe one year I've, I've got locations prepped at oaks or apple trees or scrape areas next to crop fields. And because of mass production and fruit production or crop, crop field alterations, you know, from one year to, to the next, you know, you'd never hunt locations. So it's nice to have those maps to refer back to during the years that those things do produce mass and fruit and the crop rotation is in the right crops where the scrapes start showing up again. So all, all of those, keeping all of those records is, is a big deal. And that's just part of being detail oriented. Yeah. So that, that makes me think, so let's say you had a, we'll call it property A, just a property that you hunted, let's say one year, and then you kept notes and you hunted it the next year. What kind of things specifically were you noting? I heard you mentioned uh, crops, mast. What else were you looking for um, early on and what are you looking for now? I mean, scrapes, any anything specific beyond that uh, that would help you say, okay, coming into this year, an unknown season, I can look back at my notes and what were important things for you to note? Well, like last year, the the closest piece of property to where I actually live that I can hunt, that I have permission on, is about 35 minutes from my house. And last year, that property, it's got a lot of agriculture on it. And last year, he planted everything into potatoes. First time ever. So the deer did not know what potatoes were, and the deer basically left the area. I mean, there's a lot of deer in that area, and they just left i mean there were a few deer there but nothing like normal uh unfortunately it's in an area of the state where there's you know it's really sandy soil not a lot of minerals takes a three-year-old buck three and a half year old buck to be over 100 inches i can remember i shot a five-year-old there that was only 105 inches so so there's not it's not very often that there's a mature buck there that i would kill back the last three years i haven't seen a buck there that i would shoot and there hasn't been any on camera so by having having those maps, there's some properties where I may not hunt one year, but then I've got those maps where the next year I, I'll look at the maps. I know he's not going to do potatoes because you never do potatoes two years in a row, so he's going to rotate it to something else. And then once the crops are planted and he leases the farming out, so I don't know and he doesn't know until they actually get planted, uh, you know, then I go look what they are and then that will – that will kind of make me decide, okay, that, that's in the right type of crop for that particular property, uh, for those particular stands. And now I've got to go, you know, do some, you know, postseason. I've got to go in and uh, clean up the locations of all of the new growth from last summer because I do everything during postseason. And, and then I do a speed tour and check the trees, you know, to see if they're producing mast or fruit or check the primary scrape areas to see if they're active uh, you know I do that on my speed tour and on my speed tour I do those my speed tours are done after September 20th am I getting ahead of myself here or is this a question you're going to ask me later yeah I'm going to but if you want to go ahead and, and touch on it now that's fine okay my speed tours are something I do after September 20th and I do them on you know if I go into this year I'll probably have 50 locations prepped I think I've prepped six new locations this postseason so far, um, and I've went back and I've cleaned up probably 30 other locations that I've had for several years. And when I say I cleaned them up, I, because I do everything postseason, 
and then I hunt it in the fall. I don't go back in preseason and, you know, clear my, reclean my shooting lanes. I do it during postseason. I cut the new growth from the previous summer. So my speed tours, I'm going in and I'm only doing, I'm only looking at potential early season locations. Okay, so I go after September 20th, and keep in mind Michigan season opens October 1. I go after September 20th because most of the mature, if there's a mature buck, he's typically rubbed out by September 5th. So he's going to be rubbed out at least two weeks by the time I do my speed tours. So when I do my speed tours, and let's say I go to a white oak tree and it has acorns, obviously they'd be dropping by September 20th. You know, they would have been dropping for probably at least 30 days. Or if I go to an apple tree, if it has apples, they've been dropping. Um, I'm checking for mass production. And then I'm also checking, because the bucks have been rubbed out for a while, what kind of buck sign is around them. Because obviously, if if they're oaks and they got acorns or apples and they're dropping apples, or if there's a scrape period and it's on the edge of a standing cornfield where I got the security cover requirements and it's active, that's going to designate which locations I hunt in the first three days of season. You know, I'll not only see if it has mast and fruit production, I'm looking at the buck sign at the location. Because typically, all, all primary scrape areas are located where there's a lot of heavy doe traffic. And obviously, apple trees and oak trees are where does come in to feed. So if there's a lot of doe traffic at those locations, there's going to be a potential scrape at the apple tree, some rubs in the vicinity. So I'll, if there are rubs, I'll look at the rubs. I'll see how high they are up on the trees. That will also help me dictate whether I'm going to hunt it or not, because if it's a rub and it's, you know, two to three feet up the tree, it's probably going to be a one or a two and a half year old buck. You know, if there's, if it's up there like four feet off the ground, you know, as bucks age, they get taller, the racks get higher off their head. So if there's a rub and it's up much higher up in the tree, then there's a really good chance that that's a a mature buck that I might be interested in killing. So I do my speed tours to see if there's mass and fruit production, see if scrape areas are active. And then I also am looking at the buck sign at those locations to dictate if they have production, food production, is it one that I want to hunt according to the buck sign that is there. So that's why I do the speed tours after September 20th because there's going to be some sort of buck sign at the locations if they are producing food. Yeah, a lot of great tips in there. And one of the things you mentioned, that's something I just started paying attention to maybe in the last two or three years is the height of a rub. And, I mean, a a big diameter tree is great to see, but uh, a big buck will rub small trees. I'm sure you're aware of that. And and a lot of times the only giveaway on on a rub like that is the height of it. And like you said, almost always, not always, but almost always, a taller rub is an older age class buck. Pretty much always. Yeah, when you like when I go out, when I hunt out of state, I always go out of state during Michigan's gun season because I do not gun hunt. So when I do go out, of, I suffer with all the Michigan bow hunters until November 15th, and that's when I go out of state and I hunt in Iowa, Kansas, or, you know, one I hunt one week out of state, Illinois, and, you know, I, I hunt some of those big buck Midwestern states, and you see rubs out there. It's not uncommon at all to see a five foot high rub, not at all. And, and, so even in Michigan, you know, if I, a big buck's going to have taller, typically they're going to be up higher in the tree. And you're going to see little, because they're going to have eight or 10 inch, you know, G2s, eight inch G3s. So 
not only are the racks up higher off a little bit higher off their head, the tines are up a lot higher. You know, you get a you know two and a half year old eighty five inch a point, and his tines are going to be five inches tall. His rack's not going to be as high off his head, and he's going to be a shorter deer. So his tine marks up the tree might be a foot lower than than a four year old. Right. Well, before we move on to the next topic, I want to circle back to to the organized topic for for a final question there. And what would you recommend to hunters that are looking to get more organized and disciplined in their hunting approach? If you had to boil it down to, let's say, one, two, maybe three things that you think really made a difference in your own hunting, what would you tell people to focus their energy on? I think detail and organization is in a person's DNA. You either are or you are not. But uh, even if you are not and you want to try and make some gains towards being more organized, separate all your locations. Anytime you, ma- anytime you prepare a location, you should be thinking, okay, when is the best time of season to hunt this location? If you're prepping, a, if you're prepping an apple tree, obviously with a morning entry, you're going to spook deer feeding at the apple trees. So that negates that as a morning location for the most part. So that puts that into the evening location. Okay, is this apple tree dropping apples that are going to be dropping into November during the rut phases? Or is it an apple tree that's going to have all the apples are going to be on the ground and consumed by mid-October? You know, is it a summer apple tree? So you want to look at what kind of apple tree it is. Uh, When you're looking at oaks, is there a sea of oaks in the area where there's going to be acorns on the ground all up until and through the rut phases to make that a a rut phase hunting location, or is there only one or two oaks and the oak acorns are going to be pretty much all consumed by mid-October by the turkeys and by the deer and by the squirrels. So you want, you want to take every location and designate it as what time of year am I going to hunt it? Is it going to be an early season location? In Michigan, the October lull is pretty much a dead period. So in Michigan, I focus on the first three or four days of October, because after that, any buck I want to kill is going to be nocturnal. There's just too much hunting pressure not for him to be nocturnal. Uh, and then I'm going to hunt on the rut phases. So you want you want to designate, okay, is, is this something I may hunt in the early season? Or is it going to be a rut phase location? Is it a morning location? Is it an evening location? If you're prepping locations in a bedding area, which I hunt in bedding areas a lot during the rut phases, Uh, Obviously, those are rut phase only locations, and they're specifically all-day locations. You don't go in and hunt a bedding area during the pre-rut and rut in the mornings or just the evenings. So you got to get in there a couple hours before daylight, be situated, and then not leave till a half hour after dark. So they are designated all-day sets. And you also, to be detail-oriented in a bedding area, you're going to have deer downwind of you at some point in time during the hunt. So you've got to have a really good scent control regimen. And I think being detail-oriented also involves if you are hunting with buddies, which I do not. I'm a solo hunter. But if you are hunting with buddies, you have to think to yourself, I don't want to hunt in the bedding area, or I want to make sure if I do hunt, they let me hunt in the bedding area, that they're not going to go in there and hunt it as well. A lot of times guys will keep bedding areas as sanctuary areas, and I think that's really stupid unless you micromanage properties like you see on TV. They can get away with it because the deer stay on their property. Um, but if you're just hunting a 60-acre parcel and you got a 5- or 10-acre bedding area and you're leaving that as a sanctuary, I think you're crazy. 
uh, because that deer could easily, if there's a good buck in there, easily be off your property and get shot during gun season by somebody else or, you know, breed it once breeding season starts. He's, he picks up a hot doe, and then as soon as her cycle's over, maybe at, at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, he picks up the scent of another hot doe, and, and it's a doe that's, you know, core area overlaps where he is, and she takes him someplace else, and then once her cycle's over, another doe that overlaps hers goes takes him someplace else. You know, there's an excellent chance that the buck you're trying to kill that's been bedded on your place all summer and early fall isn't even on your property. So you've got to take advantage of that situation come pre-ride, which is going to be like October 25th, 28th is when it starts, you know, into early November. And that that's one of the key times you want to hunt interiors of, of bedding areas and commit to an all-day sit. So, but you got to be detail-oriented where if you got other people hunting the property and you all have equal equal control, you want to make sure you're the only one hunting in the bedding area so that you're controlling what's happening in there. Because if you get two or three guys hunting in a relatively small bedding area, you're going to run the deer out of there because somebody's not going to have a good scent control and somebody's going to hunt it in the morning and evening and spook deer with their morning exit or spook deer out of it with their evening entry. And then that buck, if it's a mature buck in a pressured area, he may never come back or he may just turn 100% nocturnal. That's a lot of really great and, and really specific information. And that's the type of stuff I'm, I was looking for. And one of the things that I've been doing since I started taking bow hunting a lot more seriously, let's say, you know, 12 years ago is when I hear you or a guy like you, you know, these really successful hunters talk about details. I mean, I just want to recap some of the stuff you said. You talked about varieties of apple trees, right? I think some people are the average deer hunter. They go in there and they say, oh, there's some apple trees. I should hunt there. I mean, the things that you and, and guys like you that are having what I say is top tier success are doing differently is, well, you you think the next step or the next two or three steps and you say, oh, that's X type of variety. So those apples are going to be gone early. Or like you said, they could be on there late. Is there a few oak trees or is there a whole bunch of oaks? And, you know, you're looking at morning, evening, what's the most optimal setup and the time of year to be there. And I think those are the type of details in the organization. And on top of that, you're taking notes too, where that's where you really start building success. And, and that's the things I'm, I'm trying to get across to uh, people that are listening to this podcast is, you know, take, take that stuff to the next level and then you get next level results. Yeah. And a lot of hunters are not thinking about those things just because they've never thought about it. I mean, not a lot of people on TV talk about that kind of stuff because they're hunting canned deer pretty much and they don't have to. So it, it's not something you hear a lot, but uh, um, it, it's something that as you gain more experience and if you are paying attention, you notice, oh God, I, you know, I prepped this tree. It had yellow apples on it when I did my speed tour and a lot of half of the apples were already out of the tree and on the ground on September 22nd when I did my speed tour. Well, then you you hunt it maybe the first day, and you have some does and fawns come in, or maybe a subordinate buck, and then you say, okay, now I'm going to leave it alone until the rut phases, you know, in the first of November, and you go back, and all the apples are out of the tree, and on the, they're consumed. So now it's worthless. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it, it wouldn't be a hundred percent worthless because the bucks would potentially, possibly a buck may still pass through there just because of the memory of does eating there, you know, in, within the last several weeks. But 
but it's not going to get the activity if there was as if there were still apples on the ground. So paying attention to those details and noting them, and once you learn what kind of apples in trees are summer apples and and fall apples, and some of them are dark red apples that fall even into December. I've got I've got one spot where they're just deep dark red apples and they're not real big and they fall into January. A lot of times I'll go there when I'm postseason scouting and there's still some apples in the dang tree. So those are the kind of apple trees that are really awesome for hunting in during the rut phases because they hang on so long. And it's all in those types of trees. They only drop a few each day. So it's a first come first serve basis. You know, it's kind of like a race to get there in the evening for the deer. So, you know, apple trees that just drop a gazillion apples on the ground you know a buck can come in if buck, buck's relatively nocturnal he can come in after dark and eat a few apples you know because he knows there's going to be some on the ground but if it's a first come first serve basis because only a few fall every day then he's more likely to come in before dark so i want to ask you a question and this came up on another podcast uh, my buddy ryan anderson he's, he's kind of a well-known hunter getting to be he had a theory based on a trail camera, and I want to see, um, this is kind of off the cuff here, but he had a theory on some of those apple trees that you're talking about where only a few drop a day, that he was seeing a lot more camera activity on windy days, and his theory was that the deer knew that that was going to blow some apples off. Have you ever observed anything like that? Yep, and also what you got to keep in mind, it depends on where the apple tree's at. If the apple tree is very close to the edge of a bedding area, or, or if, you're, if it's in an area that's not getting a lot of hunting pressure, the does may very well bed relatively close to the apple tree where they could physically hear the apples hitting the ground. So that's something you have to take into consideration. I see that a lot. You know, you, you can't really, if you're hunting non-pressured property, you can't really correlate what they're getting on camera to what might happen in a pressured area. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, but if you're in a non-pressured area, private ground, it's very likely that the does that are feeding at that apple tree, they're probably after they eat a few apples in the morning, they're going to go bed within probably, you know, 30, 40 yards if there's some form of security cover around the apple tree. And if it's a windy day, they're going to hear, they physically hear the apples hit the ground and then they get up and they go over and eat some. Yeah, that's an interesting insight I thought he had. And uh, it's good to hear you kind of confirm that. So I think that's something that I, again, things that I would have necessarily never considered. But then when you hear it, it's like, oh, I've, that sticks out and I can keep that in the memory bank and look for that going forward. Yeah, because I, I have no clue what kind of property he owns. So I don't don't know yeah he's on he's on the same thing public and uh knock on door permission but he's in um minnesota so i think the pressure compared to michigan is, is much lower that's night and day yeah exactly night and day difference minnesota and michigan yeah so i've i grew up and, and hunted until i was oh 35 36 in michigan and in, in aranac county which is as pressured as anywhere in michigan and now yep. i live in montana but i've, I've also hunted kansas north dakota south dakota ohio so i can definitely validate the things that you said about the hunting pressure and the differences and the deer behavior in, in different states uh, kansas and montana like it's it's 
infinitely easier than it is in, in Michigan. And there's just yeah. much better age structure too. So you have both of those things uh, working in your favor. To me, that's one of the biggest things. And a lot of people also don't keep in mind, it's not just hunting pressure. Michigan's also a two buck state, which doubles the pressure in reality. What pressure there normally would be with just us having the most bow hunters of any other state, it actually doubles because everybody can kill two bucks. So um, that, that makes a, a big, big difference. Yeah, and I, I describe it to my friends that aren't from Michigan that deer hunting isn't a pastime in Michigan. It's a religion, and, and a lot of people take it very seriously, and, and it's just a whole different attitude. Like you said, two tags, gun season during the rut, long gun season now, long muzzleloader season. It's like the deer just get pounded. It, it is. Michigan, you know, deer hunting is kind of in everybody, ingrained in everybody because it's been going on for so many years and again my family didn't hunt so i started on my own but but i will say this you, you look at bow hunters or just hunters in general from states like you know iowa wisconsin ohio indiana illinois kansas the, the residents there they've also been they've also been passing up on you know year and a half and two and a half and a lot of them three and a half year old bucks for years and years and years They've got the whole management down way farther, way longer than Michigan hunters. Michigan hunters over the last 10 to 15 years, you're seeing a lot of a lot of hunters start passing up year-and-a-half-old bucks, and now you even see some hunters passing up two-and-a-half-year-old bucks. In those other states, because there's less hunting pressure and they just grow bigger bucks per the same age class, they've been doing that for years and years and years. You look at Wisconsin, Wisconsin's you know, it's on the same basically level as Michigan as far as ag and timber. The northern part of the state's got tons and tons of timber, like the UP in northern Michigan. And the southern part's got a lot of ag. You know, Wisconsin enters over 500 PNY bucks every single year. And they're a one-buck state. Michigan, with being a two-buck state, with probably 70,000, 80,000 more bow hunters, uh, we enter about 70 Pope and Young bucks a year. So... Wisconsin enters more than any other state in the country, and it's because they've been practicing, uh, Not it's not mandatory, but they've just, as a hunter mindset, have been practicing management for a much, much longer time than hunters in Michigan. And it's the same way in, you know, all of the big buck states. They've, the hunters have just been practicing, uh, you know, letting little bucks go for a lot longer period of time. That's why they, that's one reason they have better age structure of bucks you know michigan still 80 percent of all the bucks killed during gun season are a year and a half old bucks uh those other states aren't like that plus obviously their antler growth per age group is much higher i can remember talking to dan infault dan infault told me it's not uncommon for a buck in wisconsin where he's hunting as a two-year-old to have 140 inch antlers he said in 125s for a two-year-old is really common up here in central Michigan, it takes a three-year-old to get to be a hundred inches. I mean, that's just, and a lot of times even three and four-year-olds don't get to be a hundred inches. It's just, we just don't have the minerals in the soil. Yeah, that's my experience too. Uh, there, like I said, in Aranac County, I ran trail cameras probably for eight years. Um, I know, well, I, obviously they don't have birthdays on the side of the deer, but I, I have good reason to suspect I only ever had one four-year-old deer on camera in eight years, and this isn't on one property. This is on a bunch of public land. I have a friend that's a dairy farmer that owns like 10 pieces of land, running cameras all over, and, you know, six, eight cameras a year. 
I had one four-year-old buck on camera for sure. He was maybe 115, and most of the bucks that I had were two-year-olds or, or year-olds. And, you know, the two-year-olds, like you said, probably 80 to 95 inches on average. Yep, yep, that's that's about the commonality. But I'll tell you what, Jeremy, other hunters from other states don't like hearing that. They they don't like hearing Michigan hunters whining about hunting <laughs> pressure and not having big deer, so... Um, so uh, we just have to suck it up and deal with it. <laughs> well, moving on, I'd, I'd consider you to be one of the most well-known names, if not the most well-known name in, in what I consider the first wave of what's now termed mobile hunting. So looking back when you first started getting serious, again, probably sounds like the early 70s, what set you on the course to hunting multiple locations over the course of a season versus sitting in the same tree or blind like so many hunters in Michigan. And when did you realize that unpressured sits yielded uh, superior results? That's a really easy question. Because back, you know, up until about 1990, I think I bought my first sunlock suit in 97. And then uh, I didn't really learn how to properly use it in conjunction with other stuff to be totally scent free. So about two, 1999 or the year 2000 is when I started totally not paying attention to wind direction whatsoever. And back in my earlier years in the 70s and in the 80s, um, I would hunt a stand four, five, six times during a season. And because of my lack of scent control, you know, every time you enter a location, you are leaving residual odor. You are definitely leaving residual odor when you're entering and when you're exiting. And it became very apparent to me, let's say I would go in and hunt a location on first day of season, and I'd have five, four does and five fawns come in and maybe a year and a half old buck, you know, on, on the first, first time I sat there and I didn't shoot anything. Well, the next time I'd go there, maybe I'd go there two days later, another evening hunt, and I'd have two does and three fawns, and that was it. And then the next time I'd go in there, maybe a couple of the fawns would come in, but none of the mature does. It, it didn't take me long to figure out. The more times I went and hunted a location, the fewer deer I was seeing. And even guys that I've talked to that hunt over bait, because I don't and never did hunt over bait, they would have the same thing. You know, the first time they went in there and hunted it, because they're baiting it prior to season, all of a sudden the first day they see a lot of deer, but just their human intrusion, the deer numbers would go down, it seems like, every time they would hunt it. So obviously, to me, I knew, I always knew all buck traffic during the rut phases revolves around doe traffic. So it didn't take me long to figure out that by me hunting a location multiple, multiple times when in reality the mature bucks I'm trying to kill are nocturnal because I am hunting in Michigan where there's so much preseason scouting pressure. Deer don't differentiate between scouting and hunting. They've been left alone all summer, and all of a sudden there's a huge human influx of human activity, and they just view that as somebody's trying to kill them. They view that as danger. So the mature bucks typically become nocturnal. And if they're not nocturnal prior to season on public land, they're definitely going to be nocturnal after the first day or two of season. So by hunting these locations multiple times, October 3rd, October 5th, I'm, I'm, I'm killing the doe activity. Now I'm seeing nothing. You know, I'm getting to the point where maybe one deer comes in after three or four hunts. 
So now I am actually altering doe activity at this location that I also was, thought was going to be a good rut phase location, you know, during the rut phases. But now that I've altered that daytime doe activity there, they may still come in and feed at night, but I've altered the daytime activity. So obviously now if I go back and hunt that during the rut phases because the does aren't coming in there in the daytime, the bucks aren't going to be coming there in the daytime either. There may still be buck activity there in the form of scrapes and rubs around the area, but it's going to be nighttime activity. And I don't care all the activity in the world, whether it be scrapes or rubs or whatever, is totally worthless if it's made after dark. So hunting places too often, it didn't take me long to figure out it was detrimental to my rut phase hunting. And in every state in the country, I don't care what state you're from, I've done all the stats that are in all of my books. 55 to 65% of all the bucks that are entered into the record books in every state are taken during that short term of the rut phases. Usually it's about a three and a half to four week time frame out of what is probably a three to a four month hunting season. So when you got 55 to 65% of the bucks being taken in a quarter of the entire season, that's obviously when you want to, where you want to focus your attention to. So by hunting your locations too much in mid-October prior to the rut, all you're doing is altering doe activity, and unknowingly you're altering the buck activity to it when you start hunting it during the rut phases. So it was just as simple as observation on your part. You you connected the dots early on between hunter pressure and uh, sightings of deer, it sounds like. Yeah, hunting, yeah, my, my hunting pressure. Even if, I had, even if I was hunting on somebody with permission, just me being there, if nobody else was even on the property, which actually that's never happened. I've never hunted any property where I was the only one. But, you know, if, even if I was, let's just say I was the only one. Just me being at this great location, maybe it's at a white oak, uh, maybe it's up in a big timber area and it's at a chestnut tree or a, a chokecherry tree, some sort of a preferred mastery. Just me being there, just me myself being there three or four hunts in a row, I noticed a dramatic change in the amount of deer that we're visiting it during daylight hours and obviously that's going to be detrimental to a big buck coming in there during the rut phases when their testosterone levels are high and they break their nocturnal uh time frame and start moving a little bit during daylight yeah that's that's a pretty easy observation is it fair to say that you would think uh hunter pressure is the number one factor influencing daylight deer activity oh period end of discussion Hunting pressure affects deer movements more than any other thing, period. I will not have that discussion or argument with anybody because they're wasting their time. That's why you see TV guys and TV shows and managed properties, they're killing bucks in mid-October. Uh, they kill bucks at will whenever because there's no hunting pressure. And when you don't shoot at deer and they pass by hunters until they're four or five years old, there's no reason to change their habits. You know, you get in a pressured area where everybody's trying to kill deer when they're a year and a half old and two and a half years old. If, if they make a mistake, they're dead. So they learn really quickly how to avoid hunters and where to and not to move during daylight hours. Otherwise, they get killed. It's that simple. It's like taking, you know, competition. I, you know, competition is basically pressure. Uh, if, you, if you had a bass contest and you took the top, 100 bass fishermen in the world who have competed against other bass fishermen to 
to become a professional bass fisherman. And they had a tournament on a public lake that has that gets fished every single day and a lot of local tournaments. Uh, and let's say they had a t- their weigh-in, you know, the top five fish weighed in at 12 pounds, which is pretty common for a professional bass tournament on a public lake. And they obviously, if you had some other dude that got to fish somebody's farm pond behind the barn that never, ever gets fished and it's got a lot of big bass, and he could be a novice fisherman that could barely cast a lure, but there's no other there's no other competition. There's been no competition on this pond. He could probably go throw anything out there and catch five five pound bass and have a twenty five pound fish weigh in and win that contest if they allowed him to enter his non competitive fish into a competitive marketplace. Deer hunting is exactly the same. You can't compare something where there's no hunting pressure and no competition to hunting where there is hunting pressure, where people are actually targeting year-and-a-half-old and two-and-a-half-year-old deer. You just can't. So hunting pressure affects everything just like fishing pressure does or anything else. You know, that guy that caught those five bass that would win that contest with those 100 professional bass fishermen because he was fishing a non-competitive farm pond, Obviously, most people probably wouldn't hang on to every word of advice on what lure he used and how he twitched it in when he was reeling the lure in because it really wouldn't matter. Probably could have went out there with anything and caught five five pound bass. No, that's a great great analogy. So I want to go back to something you said uh, earlier on to kind of qualify the next question. And you said um, you've taken 50 book class bucks. So you've probably seen as many or more than probably anybody that's a DIY hunter, you know, public land, knock on doors, uh, big bucks. And you've, you've shot a lot of those big bucks. So I would be interested to know your top three takeaways of big buck behavior. And what I'm asking for specifically is over this time, you know, 50 years and all these record class bucks, what do big bucks do differently that younger bucks and does just don't do? Like top three things. Security cover, security cover, security cover. They're definitely more in tune with security cover, staying along in security cover or down edges of security cover. They also, big bucks in pressured areas, uh, tend to move during the rut phases in midday, 11 to 3 o'clock. I have kind of an interesting stat. Of the 20, 20 bucks I've taken in Michigan that made book between November 1 and November 14th, in, in those in that 14-day period, I've taken 20 of my 31 book bucks. Of those 20, seven were taken between 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So 35% of the bucks I've taken in that 14-day time frame were between 11 and 3, while less than 8% of the time I spent on stands during that time frame was from 11 to 3. So usually, I mean, there's a lot of times I just hunted in the mornings and just hunted in the evenings. There wasn't that many times I hunted in the middle of the day, yet I still killed 35%. I killed more during the middle of the day than I did mornings or evenings. So mid people not paying attention to that midday movement traffic, which got to be in the right type of area. Uh, typically, those were in bedding areas or transition routes with security cover between known bedding areas. You know, as bucks are searching bedding area to bedding area within their core area, searching for, you know, estrus does. So midday, people are not 
targeting that midday movement. Um, security cover, you've got, if you did one thing, if a bow hunter did one thing, it would be to always pick locations that are security cover oriented. That would be, I don't care what state you live in. Obviously, when I go to Iowa or Kansas or in Illinois, you know, bucks will definitely come out into much, much more open areas during daylight hours. Bucks are much more apt to move at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning and, you know, in the evening with the other deer. The bigger bucks will move at that time. But the midday thing is a big deal anywhere. For people that aren't familiar with you, John, how would you define security cover and maybe compare that to, to what would not be security cover so people could get an idea? Even big bucks out west, they still, if you focused all your attention to security cover, you're going to kill more. You're going to have more opportunities because all bucks, as they age, become more security cover oriented. That's just a natural thing with big bucks. And I, you know, I get that. I get asked that a lot. What is a bedding area? How do you how do you define a bedding area? It's like when you walk into an area, pretend everybody's trying to kill you. Where is best places where you would possibly go on this property and feel comfortable moving during daylight hours if everybody else hunting on this property was trying to kill you. You know, I put out one YouTube video here not too long ago, walked me and my son Joe, who was doing the videography, we were just scouting a new piece of public land, and we counted eight tree stands in a probably a 250 by 250 yard stand of open timber. And that's so typically, that's so typical of most bow hunters. They want to see deer. So they hunt in open areas where they have a big visual, where there's no security cover. And yeah, they probably do see does and fawns and maybe a year and a half old buck because there was a lot of oaks in this place. So there was obviously a lot of acorns. But on each side of this patch of timber, and it was open, there was no understory security cover underneath. There was a marsh on one side on the west, and then on the east side, there was a river with a big, like, cattail, weedy area that kind of came up into the timber. And on both edges, the edge of the marsh, there was probably a 10-yard wide swatch of, of brush, which there typically is along any edge. And on the river side, where the timber butted up to the weeds, there was also about a 10-yard patch of brush. And that both sides of that were just rubbed to crap. Uh, I didn't see any buck rubs that looked like they were three-and-a-half-year-olds, but still, there was a lot of buck activity along those edges of that security cover where they had a quick exit route into the swamp or into the marsh grass, and there wasn't one stand there. Everything was out in the open. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm scouting public land in Michigan, that's, that's the first thing I think about. Uh, everybody here is trying to kill me. So, obviously, if I can walk to a location standing up, while I'm scouting, and I don't care how much buck signs there, there could be 50 scrapes and 25 rubs. I, I really don't care. If I can easily access it, I'm not setting it up as a hunting location. Yeah, it may get some daytime activity by a year and a half or possibly a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, but a three-and-a-half-year-old buck, even though he may be working that area, it's not going to be in the daylight. So if you're after mature bucks, you have to look for sign that is getting visited during daylight hours. It has to have the security cover or edges of security cover where they can transition to that location and have a quick three or four hop exit where as soon as they hit that security cover, they're gone. They're not gonna wanna walk through an open patch of timber where 
they've got to run 70 yards before they hit cover where they're not vulnerable. They just don't like walking out into open vulnerable areas in states like Michigan and PA and Virginia and West Virginia and New York, you know, states, New Hampshire, states, Massachusetts, states that get a lot of hunting pressure. So security covers a big deal. And I'm not talking about being in a thicket where you can't even walk through it. I'm talking about cattail marshes, you know, tall weed fields, uh, swampy marshy areas where there's little dry humps of, you know, there, it, there's water in them and there's little dry humps for deer to bed on. Bedding areas where you are someplace where you got to cross a river with waders or hip boots or cross a lake with a canoe. Just places where you can get away from other hunters or go in areas and swampy areas where other hunters just are not willing to go. That's what you have to look for because that's where the mature bucks are pushed to. That's where they are physically at by the time bow season opens because there's been so much preseason scouting on the public lands, you know, prior to season by so many other bow hunters. They've already pushed any mature deer back into that heavy security cover or bedding area or across a river or back on the backside of a lake where it's hard for a hunter to access it. And the only way you can access it is with a boat or a canoe. Yeah, that was one of the things that I learned, you know, over the last five years I hunted in Michigan is that water is an incredible hunter deterrent, but not very much of a deterrent for the deer. They will get in those areas. And if you're looking for those older age class bucks, then you ought to get real comfortable with, with water. And I, I almost made it to the point where I was almost exclusively looking for areas that were over muck boots. So I wore hip boots or waders. And if I could get there with muck boots on, I probably wouldn't hunt it. Oh, yeah. If you can access it with muck boots on, with knee boots, yeah, it's that doesn't mean anything. Because everybody's wearing that. So anybody can access that. You got you got to go to areas where you have to access it with hip boots or waders. And, and I always carry those with me. And then when I need to put them on, I put them on. They make hip boots and waders now out of two-ply nylon that don't weigh squat. So, you know, it's not like you're carrying a heavy pair of neoprene waders or, you know, something like that. Yeah, this will be a, a free product plug for Dan's hunting gear. I don't know if that's what you're using, but Dan's hunting gear makes really nice waders. Like you said, they're made out of uh, a nylon instead of a, f- a full rubber, and you can get them sewn on with, like, lacrosse boots or muck boots or whatever boot you prefer, and uh, those work real good, and they're, they're real briar-resistant too, which is important so you're not always poking holes in them. Yeah, you just need you just need something really lightweight because – you're only going to put you're only going to put them on at the edge of the waterway and cross. And as soon as you cross, you're putting back your hunting boots back on. So you're only going to wear them for you know if you got a 20 yard wide river or whatever 10 yard wide river that's you know waist deep. That's all you're using them for, and then you're changing back into your regular hunting boots. Yeah, exactly. Well, John, I want to move on to game cameras, and and I've listened to a lot of your podcast, but for people that haven't. One of the things, and I think this is in your book too, is that in Michigan, and maybe this has changed and this would be part of the question, you do not use game cameras, but I believe you do use them on out-of-state hunts. So the question is kind of two-part is, one, are you still not using game cameras in Michigan? And if so, why not? And two, when you do use them, let's say out-of-state or in Michigan now, how are you using them specifically? Uh, I, I am using them a little tiny bit in Michigan. I'll probably put two or possibly three cameras out in Michigan at 50 locations, at 45 to 50 locations. And I'm just doing them for an inventory. Um, I will, I never, ever put one at my hunting location, ever. I'm just putting them at, at high traffic locations 
edge of crop fields or where I can find a, a really heavy transition zone where deer are going to go through there after dark. You know, it's not going to be a daytime hunting location, but deer are moving through this particular area after dark, uh, side traffic area. So I just want it for basically an inventory. Now, my kids, Joe and John, I think each have one or two. Joe has a couple. You know, they're the cell cameras that push the pictures back to your cell phone or your computer. And those things are awesome. And if I, if I had some of those, and you got to keep in mind, my hunting locations are so far away from my house. I don't have time to do a lot of extra peripheral stuff, you know, like make mock scrapes and deal with that kind of thing. So I probably this year I'm going to get a cell camera because I do have one spot about two hours and 45 minutes from my home in southern Michigan where I would like to have a cell cam. But the reason I don't use them in Michigan in my hunting locations is because uh, our standard blackout camera requires a visit to change the card. And I'm just not willing, you know, a visit to check a camera is no different than a visit to go deer hunting. So the more times you visit, the more you're lowering doe activity. So an intrusion is an intrusion, whether you're hunting or not. Deer don't know you're just going there to pull a card out of a camera. They just see or listen or hear your your human intrusion and view that as danger and avoid that location during daylight hours. So that's why I'd never use them at our hunting locations. Now, when we go out of state, we put a camera at every, every single hunting location we have. They're all uh, regular blackout browning cameras, and we check every, after every morning hunt. We don't hunt middays out of state. We do here, but we're not out of state because you don't need to. Uh, but after every morning hunt, we go and check every single camera, and most of, the lo- most of them we can actually drive to with a four-wheel drive truck. I drive a minivan, but my son has, my, both my kids have four-wheelers as well as minivans. So when we go out there, we always take a four-wheel drive truck, and it doesn't seem to bother the deer. We still, you know, we'll have a, we get a picture of a, a big buck that was there the evening before when we're checking it in the morning. Uh, we'll hunt that spot that evening, even though we drove out there and checked that card with a truck, and they'll come right, come right back through it. You, they're typically always at primary scrape areas, which are pinch points in you know, draws. Draws out there in Kansas are basically where the deer have to transition through during daylight hours because that's the only available security cover. So we just find pinch points in the draws and usually there's scrapes there. We put the cameras on the scrapes and check them every day. And uh, it, it, I don't know, just nothing seems to bother those deer out there in Iowa and Kansas. We de-spec our hunting pretty big time when we go out of state. Because you never ever even consider checking a cell camera in Michigan with a driving to it. Right, right, especially deep in the cover. So I want to ask you yeah. uh, your opinion on this. One of, the, one of the methods that has become more popular in trail camera use that I've noticed lately or online in the forums is what I would call prospecting. And this is where people will put a camera out with lithium batteries. You know, they'll put it out, let's say, the same time you're doing your postseason prep, April. And they'll identify an area during spring scouting. They'll put that camera out there with lithium batteries, and it's not over a food source or a salt block where it's getting tons of pictures. And they'll just leave that thing there for the entire year and then check it and use that data for the following year. Is that something you've ever done? And if not, do you think that could be valuable? Yeah, I think it's viable. I've never done it. I don't. I probably will never do it. But, 
you know, especially if you don't, you know, I see that, I see a lot of guys that manage their property and have food plots, you know, they'll, they'll put a little licking poster mock scrape out in the middle of a food plot and they'll, they'll take a stake and put a camera on it, you know, and, and basically all the deer will socially use that because it's in the middle of a feeding area and that kind of gives them an inventory and they, they do it year round. Obviously, I don't own any property. I've never hunted over a food plot in my life, and I probably never, ever will. So, you know, again, stuff that's done on managed properties don't work for what I'm doing. If I put a camera out year-round, it just gets stolen. I mean, every place <laughs> I hunt, there's other hunters. So. Yeah, that's an unfortunate reality. That would be a 100% weight throw. I would be throwing my money away. <laughs> I've had cameras stolen before. I've had stuff standing I've had steps stolen before. I've had sticks stolen before. Back when I hunted tree stands, I had tree stands stolen before. That's one thing I love about the saddle. You can't steal my saddle because it's in my backpack all the time. <laughs> right. You're right. I like to think of hunters on average as being good, upstanding people. Unfortunately, there's a few that are not. And uh, it's always disappointing to go out. And yeah, I don't use a saddle um, mostly because I'm a larger, larger fellow and I feel more comfortable in a tree stand. Uh, I do know that's got its. It's got its own disadvantages, but... Yep, I understand that. That is a myth, though. I will say that. Uh, at my workshop, yes, last weekend, Chad Goth, who was a pro staffer with Tethered, he's a big man. He's a big guy. He's a disabled vet, and he's got a really bad back, and he couldn't even hunt out of tree stands anymore. And I, he came over to me at one of my seminars at the Novi Algorama in Michigan, and he, he stayed in my booth all day, and we just chatted. And he's a younger guy. He's in his 30s. And I said, I don't think you'd have any problem with a saddle. I said, it's like sitting in a nice hammock chair. And he he bought a saddle and tried it, and he loves it. He has no back issues hunting out of a saddle. And he's 200 and I don't know how big you are, but he's 260. I'm about the same size, yep. He's probably, he may be six feet tall at the most. Yep, that's about about my exact dimensions, like six foot 260. So I have been thinking about giving okay. one a try, and uh, probably sooner or later I will. Concerning that prospecting, though, everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. And you have to, if you're looking for information that you can use for yourself as a hunter, you have to get information from somebody that's hunting similar type of ground. You know, so if you're hunting managed properties, I'm not the guy you want to take advice from. You know, obviously, mature bucks gravitate to security cover no matter where you're at. But there's a lot of things you could do on managed property to help your hunting be better that I can't relate to. So if you're hunting ultra-managed property, you may want to take the advice of somebody and talk, listen to their talk on prospecting cameras where you, you don't have to worry about it getting stolen. There's a lot of things you could do on managed properties that you just can't do on public land. Right. You just can't do it. So. You have to think about your hunting style, your property you're hunting, and take advice from people that have been successful hunting similar types of properties that you're you're trying to hunt. That makes a lot of sense. So a- another thing I wanted to talk about, and I know, or like you said, you, you don't use cameras or very rarely in Michigan. Do you ever shine or spotlight? I used to go shining all the time back in... I'd say 1970 through maybe 82, 1982. I don't think I've went shining since 1982, but they used to be a really big deal. I mean, God, you'd, a lot of times you'd be shining, there'd be three people shining the same damn field. Right. Um, 
but I haven't done it in years and years and years. If you're not using game cameras, are you ever targeting a specific deer? Because when I lived in Michigan, I actually did much better locating um, target animals with shining and glassing than I ever did with game cameras. So I was wondering, are you targeting a specific deer ever, or are you targeting deer of a certain caliber and age class and then just kind of rotating through, let's say you got 40 locations prepped for the year, and then you're just waiting for a deer of that class to show up. What is it one or the other or both? I'm scouting my sign. I'm, I'm, when I'm prepping my locations, I'm prepping them according to uh, the location, if it's a feeding location, scraper or whatever, but I'm also prepping the location based on the buck sign at the location from previous years. So I, you got to keep in mind, the closest place that I have to hunt is 35 minutes. Other than that, they're all two hours to two and a half hours. So I just can't take off some evening and go down shine two and a half hours away and then come home. So it's not like it's local. Back in the days in the 70s when I did shine, I was shining around the areas where I lived and where I was hunting. Uh, but that has changed over the years. So uh, I, I, I don't hunt in northern Michigan as much anymore as I used to because the bucks just have to be so damn old up here to have a decent set of antlers. And there's just so many damn hunters up here. So I just, I just don't hunt up here that much. I'd rather hunt in Southern Michigan where there's more ag and, you know, there's more minerals in the soil. And, you know, a three-year-old in Southern Michigan, a lot of times is a 125 inch buck. There's no way you're going to have a three-year-old up here on regular property. That's 125 inches. It just, that just doesn't exist. No, that was my experience as well. Like I said, I grew up in Aranat County, but I had permission uh, for several years on a piece of private land, uh, you know, knock on door permission in Shiawassee County. And then I also hunted some public land that I don't want to name in southern Michigan. And the difference between the three counties, you know, the farther south you go, just like you said, the, the same age class deer just in general got bigger and bigger racks. And it even continues when you go down into Ohio, they even get bigger than in Southern Michigan for the, for the same age class on average, obviously we're speaking general terms here. Sure. Uh, sure. But as far as back to that other question about targeting a specific deer, you know, there are years where I will have a camera out and maybe I will see something. I will target that specific deer. Uh, 2014, I killed 154 incher on opening day in the morning. Uh, I was, targeting that very specific deer and I killed him. Uh, but typically that's not the case. I'd say maybe one every 10 years on average, I am, I, I actually am able to target it. I, I know there's a specific buck in the area and I try to target that, but typically, you know, I'm, I'm basing my hunting off what the other people on the property are seeing. Cause keep in mind, when I'm hunting properties, there's always, there's always other people hunting it. And a lot of times I might know them and they will tell me what they see or have on camera. So on the sly, I find out what's there without me having to ruin my locations to do so. So, yeah, there are, there are times, but it's rare that I do hunt specific deer. The, the state record buck that I shot in 1981, I was definitely targeting that deer. These friends of yours that are giving you information, are they crazy? Don't they know who they're giving this information to? Evidently not. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's how I killed that 154 incher. A guy <laughs> told me he saw this big buck cross the road, and I, I went over on a two acre parcel, and I got permission on this two acre parcel that butted up to this big cattail marsh, and uh, I patterned, I pretty much patterned that buck. The brush on the edge of the cattails was on her property, and there I went back there after September 20th, and that brush was all rubbed as crap. Back, no, I take that back. I went there. I put a camera out, and I had a picture of four bucks on her two acres. And keep in mind, she lived up the front of the property because two acres isn't. And at the back of the property, nobody ever went on her property. Nobody ever asked because it was only two acres. But on the back of her skinny little two acres, it butted up to this cattail marsh. And I put a camera back there because there was a couple oaks. And then there was red brush butting up to the cattails. And I put a camera out, and I had a picture of four bucks. Um, one, I think there was a five, a six, and a small eight, two-and-a-half-year-old eight-point, and then this big uh, big ten-point. And they were all in velvet when I first got them. So I went back there on September, I think it was the third, I went back there. And I pulled my card, and I also noticed there was a bunch of rubs on that red brush. Well, when I took my card back home, that big buck, I had him on camera, and I had all three of those other bucks on camera. They were still in velvet. The big buck was out of velvet, so I knew those that red brush that was all rubbed up was from him. So I went back on a, a rainy, windy day because I was going to be hunting right on the edge of the cattails, and there was an excellent chance that he would be bedded only five or ten yards into the cattails. Because a lot of times early season, they have no reason to be deep back into the crap because nobody's pushed them back in there. They've got no reason to be deep into the bedding area. So there's a good chance they're just on the peripheral edge. So I went in during a rainy, windy day, and I prepped a, prepped a tree, and I shot him opening morning at 830. John, it's like you, you read my mind. One, that's an awesome story. Two, my next question was literally, do you hunt mornings early season? Why or why not? And then the the second part to that question is, if you do, which you obviously do, based on that story, what's an ideal early season morning setup look like to you? That was actually kind of a different morning location than I typically hunt. Because usually if I'm hunting a morning location, it's going to be on the edge of a standing cornfield at, a, at an active scrape area. And then opening evening, you know, I'm going to be at some sort of a master of fruit tree that has buck sign from my speed tours. And I have killed three other book bucks in Michigan on morning hunts, because that, that would be the fourth one. Um, and I rattled all of those in, and they were all in bedding areas. So on those particular years, my food locations, when I did my speed tours, none of my mass trees and none of my fruit trees had, had produced anything. So there just wasn't any apples and there wasn't any acorns and none of the scrapes along the edge of the uh, crop fields that would have been in standing corn that year were active. There were obviously scrapes that were active, but it was next to bean fields or hay fields, and I won't hunt it when it's next to an open field because it's not secure enough. So I actually hunted interiors of bedding areas, and, and on three different occasions on opening morning, I shot book bucks. Two of them were on October 1st. I take that back. Two were on October 1. One was on October 2nd, and they were all morning hunts. And I've rattled all three of those bucks in. But two of them I rattled in about 8, 8.30, and the other one I rattled in right after the crack of daylight. So i got to tell you a quick, funny, personal story. So after I read 
Uh, and I don't know if it was in bow hunting, pressured whitetails or precision bow hunting where you talked about rattling, you know, in your, how you did your rattling sequence early season in your cornfields. <laughs> One that property I was talking about in Shiawassee County, I did a rattling sequence probably right, right as it was getting gray light. And to my complete shock, cause I'd never rattled in a buck before I heard a buck grunt and literally come running, running to the base of my tree. And, uh, he stopped at the base of my tree and I could make out the body and I knew it had a good rack, but the, the guy's property I was on was trying to practice QDMA. And it was kind of like, if you shot the wrong deer, you were in trouble. So I couldn't see the deer well enough to shoot it. And it was like literally 10 yards away. And then it, as it walked away about a hundred yards away, I could still see it, you know, just barely as it was getting light out. And it was a, a 10 point they had on camera. It was the biggest buck on the property that oh, year. Oh no! <laughs> so, so, so you should have waited five more minutes before you rattled. Yeah. So the funny story there is two parts. One, John's method of rattling near cornfields early season definitely works. Uh, two, make sure it's light enough to see your pins. <laughs> your pins and the antlers. Yeah, exactly. To make sure it's a big enough one to shoot. Yeah, exactly. So I. Yeah, I, I've I've had very good success early season or first couple of days rattling in the mornings actually, because uh, I I usually don't hunt interiors or bedding areas. Uh, I'm usually hunting something different, but those particular years I was in bedding areas and early season, it, that's when they're, they're kind of sparring for pecking order. They're not brawling, you know, they're not an all out fight. Like they're for fighting for an estrus doe. They're just pushing each other for dominance and pecking order. So two of the bucks that I did rattle in, I actually heard bucks sparring and when they quit, I replicated their sparring ant sounds, which is just time tickling for the most part. And, you know, the, on both, both occasions, one, one time both bucks came in and I shot the 10 and the other time an eight point came in and I shot the eight. So a rattling works because they're, they're doing their pecking order at that time of year. And once they're in a bedding area, they don't feel, they feel very comfortable moving in there because they feel very secure. And you did a good job describing it there, but for people that haven't read the books, uh, you said time tickling and, and not brawling. Give people like an example or a description of what your rattling sequence is like in early season, because I'm sure it's different than what you see on TV. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You what you see on TV, you got hunting in an area where you got you know 150 inches clashing with each other because that's that's just totally out of the realm of what you have to do and that'll spook deer if you're on pressured property because there's just not 250 inch deer that are going to be fighting like that so when i'm talking I, I i use a rattle bag and i just pull the pull the sticks apart and i'll clash them together a little bit and then i just kind of twist them for four or five seconds and then i stop for five or seven ten seconds and then i'll roll it sticks around again for five or 10 seconds. Um, and then I'll stop. And then eight seconds later, I'll, I'll do that again. So I'll do three or four actual motion of the sticks, time tickling noises, and then I'll stop. And then I usually do that at like eight o'clock in the morning. If I'm in a bedding area, early season, first day or two, and then five or 10 minutes later, I'll do another sequence. And then I'm done for the day. Cause typically I'm hunting in a location that, uh, I wanted it also work on the merits I chose it for. So, you know, the rattling sequence is cool for, a, you know, two, two sequences relatively close to each other. But beyond that, I don't want to ruin the location by boogering it up with too much noise. 
So I want the location to also work on the merits I chose it for in the first place. Yeah, and that that's a good description. And I've been fortunate enough, and I think anybody that's hunted for any amount of time, to see some of those early October sparring sessions. And it's exactly how you describe those bucks will stand next to each other and just kind of mix their heads back and forth. And then 30 seconds later, they're they're eating soybeans next to each other or corn or whatever. And then they go back to that for 10, 20 seconds. It's it's not an aggressive all-out fight like it is in the rut. So you got to, like you said, you got to mimic that sound to have better results, I think, that time of year. And even the rattling sequences you see on TV are, are not realistic, you know, where they just take big antlers fake antlers and bash them together for 10 15 seconds bucks don't do that you never hear that out in the wild even when they're all out brawling and i was when i was in kansas last year i had two mature bucks fighting 17 yards in front of me for 20 seconds and um one of them poked the other one's eye out they both had their left antler totally broken off at the at the base but anyway when big bucks fight yeah, they hit each other with their antlers, and there's some initial hard clash, and then they'll twist them until they kind of mesh together, and then they, it's a push for dominance. The fighting part is just pushing each other. It's not hitting each other's antlers like you'd see a ram. It's uh, it's just pushing each other. Which one has the most strength? That's how that's how they work out their dominance. So the, the stuff you see on TV is un, even unrealistic for where they're at. But they can get away with it because anything works where they hunt because there's so many big bucks. Yeah, I would agree. So no, that's a it's a good tip there. The the subtlety and the rattling and you know the timing, the season, the type of locations, um, that all that stuff makes a difference versus like you said just smashing them together in, in a random spot early season. Probably not going to have good luck in Michigan or or any other pressured state. So one of the other things that I know you do early season is you focus on mass trees a lot and specifically apple trees and oak trees. And I listened to, to a lot of your podcasts that you've done with, with other podcast hosts. And one of the ones that came up and it's such a unique spot. I'd like to bring it up here is you talked about an apple tree where you've killed three book bucks. And so I wanted you to, first of all, describe the, this apple tree or trees location relative to the surroundings and the property. So relative to any suspected bedding, maybe other crops or mast, security cover, um, you know, your access, just kind of set the scene for, for this specific spot. Okay. Yep. It's up in central Michigan and there's a probably about a 50 acre crop field to the east. And then that's a flat field. And then it to the west of the crop field, it drops down about a 45-degree angle for about 40 yards, and then there's two apple trees side by side, and there's a red oak tree about, I'm probably 15 yards, 14 or 15 yards to the south of those two apple trees. Now, to the, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm to the north of those two apple trees, the old red oaks north of the apple trees. To the south of the apple trees and budding right up to the back side of the apple trees is a big patch of autumn olive. Now, for those people that don't know what autumn olive is, it's an invasive bush, uh, and it grows about, they grow about 10 to 12 feet tall, and they just kind of droop over. So it's just really nasty brush, and they get these little green leaves on them and these little red berries. 
Now, to directly and butting up to the autumn olive patch to the west, there's a big marsh. There's a cattail marsh, and then it goes a little bit. Cattail marsh goes maybe 100 yards, and then it just turns into a marsh grass and a lot of wetlands with dry humps for deer to bed on. And then you go beyond that, and there's another bedding area of, of, of just briars, prickers and briars. So basically, deer can come out of those briars or out of the, the marshy area or out of the, even the cattails. Once in a while, you'll have, I'll have them, you know, see a deer get up in those cattails because I can see down into them when I'm in my tree. And they'll move up through that, those cattails from the marsh or the briars farther back, and they'll come up into these autumn olives. And then they'll skirt, they've got one runway through the back of the autumn olives, and then the big bucks, the mature bucks, will always come through the autumn olive because that's the best security cover to the backside of these apple trees. And the very first time I hunted there in 2007, I had a decent buck. It wasn't a shooter, but it was a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, and he came through the autumn olive, and he ate a couple apples at the backside of those trees, and then he turned around and went back into the autumn olive. Now, most of the time when the does and subordinate bucks come out, they come out to the north side between the red oak and the apple trees where it's relatively open. So I have a shot. I did not have a shot to that two-and-a-half-year-old, even though I wouldn't have shot him anyway. So that told me right there, okay, that's a bigger buck. He's coming through the security cover, eating a couple apples at the back side, and then turning around, going back out the security cover. He did not want to break the cover and come out into that open, vulnerable area where the does and the subordinate bucks would feed and the fawns. So I clean, I raped, and the farmer allowed me to do this. This was on private ground. I raped those apple trees. So I had a shot to the backside of those apple trees if a buck ever came out of that autumn olive and ate apples at the backside again, you know, where I knew he wasn't going to come out to the front. And all three of the bucks I shot were in early November during pre-rut, and they all came out to the backside. They all came up through that autumn olive, through the swamp, into the autumn olive, to the backside of those apple trees, and were eating apples on the backside in the, right next to the exit security cover when I shot them. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to bring that up is because that's a great example of, of a lot of the concepts that you've already mentioned where security cover, mass trees, food sources, it's kind of all of those concepts combined into one location. And one other question I had there was, do you remember specifically those three deer or, or approximately, I guess, what what were the dates that you took those bucks? And uh, was it mornings or evenings? All evenings. I don't hunt apple trees in the morning. And then uh, do you, was it early season, pre-rut, rut, what time of year? They were all pre-rut, early November. Okay. All early November, and, and I mentioned earlier, I, I never hunt apple trees in the morning because I'd be spooking deer with my entry. That's right, that's right. And I actually, I believe, I think one of your YouTube videos actually shows that actual setup, doesn't it? Did you do a video on that spot? Yes, we did. Yep. Yeah, so anyone that's listening that'd like to check out that, and it's uh, it's a definitely worthwhile watch. I took some information away from that to watch that video, see the setup, and, you know, it's one thing to hear it on a podcast, but, uh, you know, picture's worth a thousand words, uh, video's worth a million. You got a lot of takeaways from that video for me, too. 
And it's kind of interesting when I do my speed tours, that's the property we do, or not my speed tours, but when I do my workshops, we go, we go to that property because it's not, it's by far not my best property that I have to hunt. I have some public lands that are better downstate and I have another place downstate that's better. Um, but this spot, this particular piece of property, it has a lot of different looks on it. It's got swamps, it's got funnels, it's got rivers, it's got white oaks, it's got apple trees, it's got red oaks. It's It's got a lot of different looks, so it's really, really nice to do workshops at. And it's got every location, you know, some of them you have to cross rivers to to enter and river or rivers to exit or walk through the middle of fields. I'd go through entries, exits, and and uh, that that property is just very very cool and that is just an excellent that particular video is an excellent example of how mature bucks are very security cover oriented because if if in pressured area if they're not they're dead it's it's that simple they learn quicker they die yeah exactly and that's uh, goes back to what you're talking about with the open timber you said they don't they don't like to come out there during the day and. And they don't like to come out there during the day because if they do, <laughs> they're dead. Shifting gears here. We talked about your, your speed tour briefly early on, but I have some, some more uh, in-depth questions on that. So you, you kind of described what it is. Uh, around September 20th, you go in full scent lock to all these locations that, that you've prepped in the spring, you know, in uh, March and April. But what I wanted to ask is, apart from mass dropping, what type of specific sign would clue you in that a specific destination food source would be worth a hunt that year or versus any other of your, let's say you, you typically have 40 locations prepped. So put it another way, what sign observed during the speed tour makes John Eberhardt excited to hunt a specific location? Yep. Good question. Um, okay. So if I've got, I'm just going to throw a number out there this year, I'll have 40 to 50 locations prepped by the end of, by the end of April, maybe I, I might prep one or two more yet in May, but I'll have about 40 to 50 locations prepared and ready to hunt for fall. Okay. Probably 20 of those, maybe 25, maybe half of them are going to be potential early season hunting locations. So when I'm doing a speed tour, I am strictly looking at early season hunting location, potential spots to hunt. Okay. And I don't hunt much more than the first three days of October, seriously. So basically, I'm trying to find the best four or five locations to hunt out of 20 or 25 for the first few days of season. So they're going to be at feeding destination locations. So it's going to be at oaks, apple trees, or it's going to be at a primary scrape area. So let's say I have a primary scrape area. I've set up a primary a location at a primary scrape along a field edge. Okay, during my speed tour, which is, again, they're always going to be after September 20th, where the bucks have been rubbed out, the mature bucks have been rubbed out at least two weeks because the bigger bucks always rub out first. The little bucks do it later. They're going to be rubbed out at least two to two and a half weeks. When I'm checking my locations, okay, if I let's say I go back and I check this scrape area that I prepped during postseason along this crop field. Well, when I prepped it, I had no clue what the crops were going to be in. But I prepped it where if it, the crops are in standing corn and I do my speed tour and the scrapes are active, I'm going to hunt it because a buck 
could easily be bedded in the cornfield because that's security cover as well as feeding and step out and just be two or three yards off the security cover of the corn and work a scrape in the daylight. So that's something I'm going to look for. So if, if I did it and the, if the field is in standing corn uh, and the scrapes are very active, that's a spot I may very well put into my rotation the first three or four days of season. If I go to a mass tree or if I go to a fruit tree, okay, if, the white, if it's a white oak and it's dropping acorns, that, if it has low-hanging branches, is there any scrapes there? Or apple trees the same way, does it have apples? If it does, are there any scrapes there? Are there any rubs there? What kind of droppings are there? And I will base the hierarchy of my choices on what type of, let's say every, every location I look, let's say they all have acorns and they all have apples, uh, all the scrapes are next to cornfields. Horn, I'll base the hierarchy of which one I'm going to hunt first according to the buck sign that's there. I'll look at the rubs. If the rubs are all low at this one spot, I probably will put that lower in my rotation mentally. If I go to a location and there's two or three rubs, you know, within 20, 30 yards of this location, and the rubs are up there four feet high, that's going to be right up there at the top of the location that I'm going to probably hunt opening evening at a master or fruit tree. Um, so that that's what I'm doing. I'm just looking at potential early season hunting locations and I'm choosing which ones I want on first, second, third, and fourth, according to the buck sign at those locations. You know, active scrapes or buck rubs and how high they are up the tree. No, I appreciate that answer. That's uh, really specific things to look for. And, and that again, that's the type of stuff I think that separates people that are, that are just going out, the average deer hunter and hunting, and, and maybe they saw a rub or they saw a deer here last year versus – you're going out, you're looking for very specific things. You're looking for scrapes that you've already identified to see if they're active this year. Uh, standing corn sounds like is a real big thing for your early season. Standing corn is a huge thing. <laughs> standing corn is a big deal, and it's a big deal for what you mentioned earlier. You know, you rattled in that uh, buck out of that corn. I actually prep trees on edges of fields sometimes strictly for rattling during the first week of season. You know, rattling, if you got if you got a 40, 50, 60-acre cornfield and you put a tree up next to it, there's an excellent chance if there's a big buck in the area, he's bedded in that standing corn. There's an excellent chance, especially if the timber has had much preseason scouting. They'll push him into that standing corn. And it's a great place if you got a tree on the edge of the standing corn. Uh, if you can get permission, clear a 30-yard swatch out into the corn and, you know, and rattle in the morning or rattle in the evening. I've rattled in quite a few bucks out of standing corn. Nine times out of ten, they're not big enough to shoot, but once in a while they are. And uh, and they will definitely respond early season and come out of that come come through the corn. But you've got to have a shot into the corn. It's very rare for a bigger buck, even a two and a half year old buck, to commit to coming outside of the corn. So you've got to have a shot physically into the cornfield they won't they won't break that cornfield edge without seeing a visual you know a decoy or something yeah that's a really good piece of information too so i don't know if i've heard you talk about that before if let's say you've got your tree set up on the edge of the cornfield and you, you talked about clearing a swath of course if you've got permission 
what's that look like to you? Like uh, how long of an area, how wide, how many rows of corn are you knocking down or, or are you only knocking down a little area? I like to do it in a V. I, I prefer doing two lanes in a V shape and it totally depends on the comfort shooting level of the hunter. You know, I'm a 25 yard guy, so I don't make, I wouldn't make a lane any farther than 25 yards from the tree, whatever my, my comfort level shooting distance is. Okay. Um, so it totally, you know, there's guys that can shoot 50 yards with no problem. I'm not that guy. I used to be, but I'm, I can't do it anymore. I'm too freaking old. <laughs> so. And I would imagine the, uh, the V. So, and again, I don't remember which book, but in the book you talked about clearing lanes and cattails for ground sets in a V and one would be like a spot, the deer lane. And the second one would be to shoot it. Is that the same concept here? Absolutely. You got it. Yeah. You've, you paid attention. Very That's, good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I told you, I actually read the books and I, I learned a lot from them. So. Yeah, because a lot of times, just to give people a little feedback on that, yeah, it's very similar to hunting in a cattail marsh. If you hunt in a cattail marsh and you just clear one shooting lane through the cattails, let's say you knock the cattails down to 18 inches high, you got one shooting lane. A deer could go through that so damn fast, you'd never get, you'd never have time to lift your bow up and get a shot. So you have to have V'd lanes where you can visually see it go through the first lane and then you lift your bow up as he's going through the cattails again and he's going to go through the second lane and then you're ready to take your shot. Same deal with the corn. Like I said, all those little details are years of experience. You know, that's unfortunately experience is the best teacher, but there are some things you can listen to or read that you can pick up and implement with uh, without having to learn the hard way. And that was one of the things that I picked up you know one of the many things from your books so yeah and one of the one of the really cool things about the corn and uh for guys hunting pressured areas or non-pressured areas it doesn't make any difference when you you can rattle along a cornfield in mid-october you know october lull is almost a waste of time for deer hunting but on a standing cornfield in the mornings and evenings you know you get into that mid-october time frame that's still a decent place to rattle because the deer are in security cover. They're very comfortable being in this security cover, and they, they may very well get up and move during daylight hours if you rattle. And you're not hurting any of your rut phase locations. By hunting the edge of corn, once that corn's down by usually late, late October, early November, whatever you hunted along the perimeter of that standing corn has not interrupted your rut phase locations back in the timber whatsoever so all those are free hunts where any anything that happens is a positive there's no negatives to hunting the edges of standing corn because all your rut phase locations are back in the timber gonna hunt those once the corn's down yeah it sounds like that's a good way to to mix up your sits if uh i mean when i was younger and, and even now i have a hard time not hunting mid-october even though i know it's not the highest odds i just love to be out there but that's a good area that you can hunt and like you said you not pollute your your prime or your best areas that you want to stay out of in, in until that prime yep. time well last thing in the the speed tour and i don't know if this necessarily relates to the speed tour but i, I kind of lumped it in the same a lot of the guys that i talk to these days and they're not always let me preface this but they're not all michigan hunters so they're not all hunting as high pressure states but a lot of these guys are doing some form of in-season scouting. So after, let's say, October 1st in Michigan, do you ever do any scouting after the 20th, your speed tour, and why or why not? Typically not. 
typically it's pretty rare that I do any in-season scouting because if I am scouting, when I'm scouting, I'm scouting places where there's security cover, which is where there's going to be, you know, potential daytime movement habits for a mature buck. So anytime I'm I feel like I'm scouting places with security cover, I'm potentially going to spook something and and rule it, booger it up. So there are times when I'm not seeing anything and just nothing is working out where I feel like, okay, John, you've got to be a little bit more proactive and you got to go out here and you got to go out and find some, some new sign and possibly prep a new location. Uh, but that pretty rare thing that I do, I, I do not like scouting and prepping new locations during season. If I'm going to do that, it would be more, I would be more apt to do a freelance where I just put on my fanny pack with my either strap on steps or my screw in steps and go in and just find hot location and jump in the tree and hunt it right then and there on an evening hunt. My biggest, biggest buck I ever killed, 180 incher, was on a freelance hunt. Never been that spot before until I walked in there, prepped the tree, and killed in that afternoon. And which buck was that? Uh, it was 180 incher. I shot it in Iowa. Okay. I wasn't sure if that was the uh, the, the honey locust buck from uh, Illinois or not. Nope. Nope, that was uh that was public land in December after their gun season ended. But uh, yeah, I, I had prepped, I pre-prepped that tree. I scouted it the day before, and then the first time I went in and hunted it that next evening, I I shot, I shot that uh, 160 inch 12 point. Well, I didn't have this on the uh, agenda or itinerary, but you, you piqued my interest here. So on the freelance hunt in Iowa, where you shot that big buck. I, I now I'm I'm kind of familiar with again from reading the books for people that don't know freelance for you means uh well describe that briefly what it means I mean you kind of did but go in a little more detail about exactly what that looks like for you Yeah that that particular hunt was kind of interesting cuz I I was down in a big what well, I call this spot the hole basically it's crop fields for miles and miles just flat crop fields in Iowa and all of a sudden there was a, just a huge bluff seemed like it was like a 50 60 degree angle drop and it went down into like a three-eighths of a mile wide old riverbed flood flood basin and it was just cattails and red brush and just nasty stuff and then way back there was a big river but it was like a three-eighths of a mile this cut through the landscape for miles and miles was you know, it meandered through the landscape, and the area I was hunting was probably three-eighths of a mile wide. There were areas where it narrowed down on other properties that maybe were a quarter mile or an eighth of a mile wide, but right here was pretty wide. And so I I had already prepped the location down in there, and I hunted it with a decoy. I took a decoy down there on a morning hunt, and I saw about 150-inch deer but he didn't give me a shot. And then I saw about a 125 inch eight point that I could have shot that came to the decoy and I didn't shoot, but I was, and then I only saw, I think two other does, but I was seeing quite a lot of activity a couple hundred yards back. I saw probably at least 15 deer that I could see. And keep in mind, this is in late November. So the foliage is down. So I've got a pretty big visual because I'm up 30 feet in a tree. So I decided to pull the steps, and when I come down, when I went down the tree, I was going to sit there all day. I said, you know, I'm going to skip. I'm going to freelance back farther, deeper in where I'm seeing all that morning deer activity. So I I pulled the decoy, 
put it in my military duffel bag and just stuffed it by the tree. And I was going to get it on its way out. I wasn't carrying that in on my freelance hunt. And I just slowly meandered back in there real quietly. And I found a scrape area from hell. It was three, three or four monstrous scrapes. Like all of the scrapes were as big as a put on a pickup truck and dished down in the ground four inches. So they've been there for years. And I prepped the tree. It was a little bit of a leaning tree, and I prepped it for my saddle, and I got up there, and uh, I actually shot. <laughs> I had several bucks come through, eight point. I saw that 125-incher come through again, and I think I had that tree prepped. I was in it probably around noonish. My memory doesn't really remember exactly, but 12, 12.30, I was up in the tree, and it was prepped. And that buck, that 180-incher, he came in, and he came in so fast, and he was coming in from downwind. He wasn't coming directly into the scrapes. He was just checking them from downwind. And I thought he was 40 yards, and I didn't have time to range find him. It happened so fast. And I drew my bow back, and I'm shooting a relatively slow bow because I was shooting a finger bow at the time. And I put my 35-yard pin just below his spine, and uh, when I let the arrow go, the arrow hit exactly where I aimed. It hit that void between the spine and the top of the lungs. Oh, no. And he took off, and he ran about 80 yards and into some really heavy, heavy briars and brush. And I knew I did not kill that deer. I just mentally knew it, and I was going to cut my lead strap and just commit Harry carry and oh, no. out of the tree. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> I've been there. It was the biggest buck I've ever seen in the field, and I just screwed it up. That's the way I thought, and I, and I was just totally depressed. And I said, well, okay, John, suck it up. That's bow hunting. I saw 150-incher this morning. Maybe he'll come through. So about a half an hour before dark, I decided to do a rattle sequence. Maybe it was 40 minutes. I did a rattle sequence, and I was more aggressive there because you can be in in Iowa. And right where that buck went into that brush, a buck came out. And not in the faintest part of my mind did I think that that was the same buck that I had already shot. I mean, that just does not happen. Right. <laughs> but anyway, he came out, and he is making a beeline in the exact same footprints of where that other buck had ran into the brush and he comes right comes coming right at the tree goes right by me and i'm when he got like within 25 yards i've got my bow in hand but he's he's keeping coming he's coming right to one of those scrapes which is going to put him at like 12 yards i can see the hole in his body it's the same damn deer wow <laughs> just i was like no way and he stopped and he started working that scrape. His ears were laid back. His hide was all puffed up, you know, because he, he was coming into that rattle sequence. And I shot him at 12 yards and he went 40 yards and tipped over. That's a crazy story. I'm assuming this was this is deep in the rut, right? This is November? Oh, yeah. This, this was uh, late November. This was actually kind of post-rut. Okay. This was, after, this was probably, I think, November 23rd, somewhere in there, 24th. I like going out of state during post rut, actually, because their gun seasons, their gun seasons don't open until December. So by post rut, all the does are bred, so they have to have the bigger monster bucks that have been doed up for two weeks have to actually get off their ass and go look for estrus does again. 
you know, they haven't had to do much searching because it doesn't, because they're the dominant bucks. As soon as they run across a doe that's in heat, if she's with another buck, they just take her over. So now most of the does are bred. They actually actually have to get up and work for finding the late ones. And they're tired. Their eyes are drawn. They've lost a lot of body weight. And they just aren't as attentive as normal. And they just, because their testosterone is still high, they, they still got that breeding surge. I think post-rut in Iowa and Kansas is better than, far better than pre-rut or peak rut. The only downside is there's so many monster bucks out there. By the post-rut, 50% of the bigger bucks have busted antlers. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, I've, I've heard that. So I haven't hunted Iowa. I, I'm going to this year. I actually have six points, so I'm definitely going to draw this year. But I've hunted Kansas, and the biggest buck I've ever seen from the stand, and uh, obviously I didn't have time to get out and put a tape on him, but I would guess for sure 160s, maybe low 170s, was in that almost, ex- it might have actually been November 23rd, that same time frame, out searching, you know, looking around. So let me ask you your experience at that time of year. Are you seeing less cruising but better quality or bigger, older bucks that time of year? When I'm out, out of state? Yeah, so let's say that, I don't know where, where to draw the cutoff line, but let's say November 20th to... No, I know I know where you're going. I know what you're saying. Right. Yeah, without without question. When we go out there, we usually leave, me and my two boys, uh, we usually leave November 16th. We get there November 17th. We usually take two days where we all we do is scout and prep locations. So we usually don't start hunting until the 19th. Uh, in the evening is usually our first hunt, and we we always see a lot of like 115 to 135 inches during those first several days, but we don't see the big ones. We don't see the 150s and the 160s, which are the 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 actual dominant bucks because they're always doed up. They're always with those, and as soon as they breed one through a cycle, it doesn't take them long to find another one that, during the nighttime because they just take them over from another buck. But then by the, seems like the 20, 23rd is like the hot day. It's almost like the 23rd every year, all the does, the 95% of the does are bred. So now those big dominant bucks have to actually get up and leave those bedding areas and go out and search for those late estrus does. Uh, It's almost to the day, the 22nd to the 24th. And that's when we start seeing the big bucks. We still see the 115s and 35s, but uh, but we that's when we start seeing the true big ones, where they have to get up and look for those late estrus does because it's there's just not that many does in estrus anymore. And then in your your experience that time of year, let's say you said 23rd is kind of like the the magic day there. When does that activity drop off in your experience, like that last big buck cruising type stuff? Uh, when guys start uh, scouting for gun season, because their gun season is always open in early December, so you start seeing gun season scouting activity usually the Friday or Saturday before gun season. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Prior to that, it, it, it continues. It continues up until there's, you know, people start shooting their guns and and walking in the woods and re-prepping their blinds and stuff like that. Again, pressure trumps everything, right? Yeah, and, and pressure out there is nothing like pressure here, <laughs> but but it's still a, but still it's a lot more open country out there. You know, we've got a lot of a lot more security cover, a lot more timber out there. It's relatively open, so it doesn't take as much pressure to make an effect on the deer. Yeah, yeah, I've I've experienced the same things for for sure. 
Well, John, we're coming up on two hours here, and I want to be respectful of your time. I'm looking at my outline. We're only about halfway through, so I certainly don't expect to make it through. And uh, what I would like to ask you, though, and is there any chance I could get you back on in maybe the next two weeks and we could uh, maybe do a part two? Sure. All right. Well, hey, John, we uh, we just discussed we're going to come back and have a part two here in a few weeks. Uh, I got a lot more questions that I wanted to ask you, but just in the, the name of time constraints, we're going to cut it off here for today. So appreciate you taking the time. And one more time, uh, if you could tell people your website and your YouTube channel where they can find more information and your uh, educational and instructional materials. Sure. My website is D-E-E-R, dear dash john.net dear hyphen john.net and i sell books on there. i've written three books i've produced four instructional dvds and the dvds there's no kills in them so if you're looking for kills watch tv or watch <laughs> somebody else's youtube stuff uh, mine's all instructional they're and they're very seasonal oriented on the dvd instructions um the books everything is about hunting pressure deer um, there's testimonials on my website. I have a Eberhard Outdoors um, YouTube channel. I do whitetail workshops. I do them in the spring. I've got one more coming up in May. I do have a few openings on that one. The other ones were all full. Um, they're two-day workshops at $600 per person. The first day is in the field visiting locations. The second day is a full seminar day in a uh, conference room. So they're, and again, it's all instructional. Everything is uh, intended to help help hunters in pressured areas uh, become better hunters because there's not a lot of information out there for those kind of guys. Everything's, most of the information you read or see is uh, about hunting managed stuff, and I don't do any of that. So everything I talk about instruction-wise is for helping blue-collar guys kill deer. Yeah, I know it worked for me, and that's why I was excited to talk to you. So, uh, John, thanks again for taking the time to speak with me today, and we'll get you on here in a couple weeks, and we'll wrap this up with part two. So looking forward to it, and, and thanks again. Okay, Jeremy. Take care. All right. Thanks, John. Bye.